everybody, welcome to Grab Lives. And just to start off with our disclaimer, everything we say and do does not reflect the City of Los Angeles Fire Department. And just to start off with our team member and sponsor, Frontline Behavioral Wellness. Frontline Behavioral Wellness is going to be a designed treatment facility that is meant to serve firefighters, first responders, police officers, and veterans. And their work is made to assist with PTS, PTSD, depression, anxiety, any, anything that comes along the lines of what the people who serve our communities and our country have to deal with. So their specialty is innovative in the way they treat with neurofeedback, EMDR, group therapy, individual therapy. Their facility, um, their sister company, AceraHealth.com, you can reach out to them. And one of their biggest things is they want you to reach out if you are a first responder, whether it's an extreme incident or if it's something that's simple, they have a 24-7 hotline for which you can reach out to call. It's confidential. And the number is 661-877-7241. And I've been to their facilities. It's amazing that the work they do. So if you feel inclined, if you need a little bit of help or a lot of help, reach out to them, Frontline Behavioral Wellness. Now, today's guest is Dr. Heather Williams, and it was an honor to speak to her. And she's so busy doing so many different things that it was hard to even get her on the episode to talk. And just meeting her really brought a, a lot of insight to the work she's doing as a revolutionary psychologist to treat first responders. And her story is so illuminating to all the years of crisis and trauma that she's dealt with and all the incidences she's been on to help people and their families come to some type of neutral place to feel normal again. It was a wonderful episode and I had a beautiful time talking to her about so many different things and I feel we're going to be working together later down the road because she's such a great asset to this epidemic of mental health crisis and just seeing the work that's being bestowed upon um, this process. So listen in and enjoy this episode. Thank you. All right. Um, Dr. Heather Williams, how's it going? Good, but right. please call me Heather. I always tell people I went okay. to school <laughs> later in life and have been known as Heather. And so the doctor part is just a formality and I'm such an informal person. It is proper, right, to, to call someone. Some people are so pretentious that they want to be called doctor. That so is it's true. like, call me, call me doctor, please. Um, <laughs> I'm the so. opposite. <laughs> All right, cool. So the way I came across um, our interaction was that uh, Jason Cash, he's the director of behavioral health services for Long Beach Fire Department mm -hmm. and a part of their union. So I met him at the peer support group conference and... I just being a Long Beach local, I wanted to kind of support, you know, Jason and his, his thing. He's got halos for heroes. Yep. And, uh, I just, I try to show up as many meetings as I can to see, you know, what's going on or whatever in my community. So I go one time and he's like, do you know Dr. Heather Williams? And I was like, no. And he's like, you got to meet her. He's like, we all love her and she's great. Um, and then I guess one of the guys there was going to go see you at that day. 
And so everyone just talked uh, very highly of you and I knew nothing about you. But, um, you know, it, every single time I come across someone that leads me to someone else, it's really awesome because it, it seems so divine and so uh, connected. And so uh, with that, I just was led to you and I was led to Lisa, who mm-hmm. was on the podcast. And it just, it yeah. seems so right. So thank you so much for showing up. And um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that was an amazing podcast. I listened to the whole thing driving back and forth to San Diego. Awesome. Yep. So um, I don't know everything about your program. I just heard a little bit here and there about everything going on. And I've heard some people going to your peer support group training. So definitely, uh, if you want, mind just kind of giving an introduction on you know what that is and, and what you support. Absolutely. It's, I call it a journey. I feel like all of us are on our own personal and professional journeys. And mine started 28 years ago. Um, I worked for Orange County Probation as a deputy probation counselor and got a bachelor's in psych and a master's in criminal justice. And I thought I was going to be a probation officer. So I took the test and I was waiting to promote. And the next thing I know, I'm 27 years old, just had my son, Andrew, and going through a very difficult divorce. And so I share that with you as I do with all the groups that I speak to, because sometimes in life we get thrown curveballs, not one that we expect, not one that we want, but it's what we do with it and how we navigate it. And so at 27 with no family in town working shift work, I had to figure things out pretty quickly. So after waiting for the county to do their promotions and my life turning into a giant shit show, I had to finally the plug on that and found a job working in victim services or victim witness as we know it in each of the counties. I was a program director for 12 of the 14 years and I oversaw all of our special victim programs. So gangs, homicide, sexual assault, domestic violence. I started ride along programs with victim advocates and law enforcement. So I was doing a ton of ride alongs. And then on June 29th, 2003, a man suffering from schizophrenia walked into the Albertsons where he worked as a box boy. He was yielding a samurai sword, wearing a trench coat and a beret, and he went in and he killed two, decapitating one and injuring three more before he was shot and neutralized by an officer. Little did I know by definition that that would be the beginning of my crisis response journey, responding to critical incidents and active shooter events. Wait, so you witnessed this? I did not witness it. I oh. would, we were called in two days later oh, okay, to come it. respond because the Albertsons Corporation and Irvine PD were like, we don't know what to do with this. I remember that. I remember hearing about this. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. Well, I was in middle school when that happened, but... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, thanks for telling me how old I am. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Yeah, it was crazy. It was... Um, you know, Albertsons called their EAP and their crisis counselors came out. So like some MFTs came out and they looked at me. I had just finished 40 hours of crisis response training that Friday. And this happened on the next two days later on Sunday. So I, I do believe things happen for a reason, the whole divine kind of thing. Um, so I show up because Irvine PD and Albertsons are like, what the hell do we do with all these people? There were 55 people in the store at the time, hmm. shopping, community, employees. I get there and I remember the EAP therapist looked at me and goes, Heather, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I said, okay, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it and I'm going to run with it. So we responded for about a week and a half um, to victims, witnesses, the community. 
And I basically was trial by fire. And I was the operations person. And I was bringing in the teams of our advocates who had been trained. And we, we, it was a really interesting experience. And it was really standing in the middle of a grocery store, watching this, this kid who was so scared, put green beans back up on the shelf where blood had splattered from one of the victims. And he was so paranoid. And I'm looking around, I'm like, is this really happening in the safest city in America? And from that moment, I thought, wow, the ripple effect on crime and victimization is huge. And nobody really was thinking about that. So 20 years ago, part of that ripple stopped at the community level. It didn't consider the first responders. It didn't talk about anybody else who came, who came next. So I created a program called the Crisis Response Team. There were 17 of us trained on how to respond to major critical incidents, typically death-related. And so during that time, I responded to homicides, murder, suicides, traffic fatalities, baby deaths, drownings, workplace violence incidents, the Salon Maritage shooting in Seal Beach, um, the Dorner incident that occurred where the LAPD... Um, officer who went rogue and started killing officers and people for about 10 days responded to the initial homicide. Yeah, I remember how wild, that was pretty wild too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, talk about a group of, you know, law enforcement officers all in Southern California who were incredibly concerned and worried going <laughs> right. home and clearing their own homes before they let their families in, right. not sleeping. Um, yeah, it was pretty. It was a pretty in, intense time. Uh, there was a serial killer on the loose in Anaheim, like a month before that happened. So it was just like one critical incident after another, and it was an amazing experience. And during that time, I'd be out on a lot of the same with the same officers, same personnel, and um, would talk to the firefighters on scene and and just do whatever I needed to do for. The victims and witnesses were the focus, right, to, to deal with the emotional trauma so that police and fire could do their job. Like, we'll deal with that. You guys deal with the rest. And then I was out on a, a call with Anaheim PD where a three-year-old had died in her sleep. And they were at the hospital. They call me out. And at four in the morning, I'm talking to the family. And it's a hellacious experience. And the next thing I know, the sergeant walks over to me. And he's kind of got this glazed-over look on his face emotional. And he says, Heather, I know you're here for the family, but would you mind going outside and talking to the officer who just did CPR on the little girl? So I did. And um, what he said was, because I said to him, I'll name him John. Hey, John, how does a three-year-old die in her sleep? And he looks at me and he shakes his head and he says, Heather, I can't wrap my head around this because the whole time I'm doing CPR, I'm thinking of my two and my five-year-old and what if this were my family? And at the same time, it hadn't dawned on me while talking to him until I saw the little girl's picture on the dad's phone trying to distract him that my daughter was also three at the time and in bed. And so collectively, we projected that situation onto our own families. And that's normal. But this was before peer support. This was before wellness and resiliency and all these things we talk about now. And so that was the pivot into more of a peer support function and role because then it started to pick up. It's like, hey, Heather, we need you to come debrief these folks, police and fire. And even from a peer support perspective, because I'd been doing it so long, um, 
I was getting more and more calls. So in 2010, I got a call from the Orange County Sheriff's Department after a train versus pedestrian incident. Three young people are asleep on the tracks after a night of drinking. And one wakes up, gets nicked by the train, calls 911 and says, I think I've been hit by a train and I can't find my two friends. So deputies arrive on scene and they're basically confronted with two people's body parts strung about a mile up and down the road. And because of that early morning socked in with moisture kind of atmosphere, they started to have a physiological response, dry heaving and gagging because of the smell. So again, no peer support, no nothing. I get a call two months after the incident, and we know in peer support that that's unheard of now. So I show up two months later, and I'm met by a six foot four sergeant who towers over me. I'm five four, and he goes, "Why are you here now? Why weren't you here two days after the incident? Two months? Are you serious?" And I said, "You're right. This is not best practices, but do you mind chatting?" And so he shared with me that night that his wife wanted to barbecue steaks. And so he did. And as he cut into that steak and blood seeps, sl- sl- sleeped, steeped, <laughs> I'm like, where, where's that word? Bl- blood was on the plate from the yeah. steak. And um, he had to push it away. He couldn't, he couldn't eat it because it reminded him of what he experienced earlier that morning. And then I talked to the next deputy and she said something to me that truly changed the trajectory of my life, of my focus. And she said, Heather, we get training in everything. And so for everyone listening, I want you to think about all the training you got on the front end of your career. But no one has ever trained us how to deal with the stressors and traumas of this job. And I paused and I had the hugest aha moment. It was like being slapped in the face with reality because what I realized is I was doing the exact same thing that everybody else was doing in this field. I was sucking it up, saying I was fine and moving on to the next one. Hmm. And in that aha moment, I realized too, you know, if you had asked me, Heather, how are you after giving death notification to three little girls? I'm fine. Heather, how are you after responding to the Salon Meritage shooting? Not for one day or a few hours, but for a month straight. I'm fine. Heather, how are you after walking the adult son, 23-year-old son, over to his dad's dead body to say goodbye one last time before the coroner transport took him? And he happened to be a retired law enforcement officer who killed himself up in his attic that day. Hmm. I'm fine. And so I'm going out on all these calls. I'm dealing with the the trauma and the the wailing and just all the stuff that you guys see and experience in the living, right? It's oftentimes not the dead body, but it's the living's reactions that can be so much so much more of the impact and I call the wailing of a human being like soul penetrating. It's almost like you can feel it in your bones. Yeah, I've I think one of the biggest things is when uh, someone is screaming while I'm doing my job save my and, child and or, that's one of the hardest things i i that will stick with me way longer than the actual call yep because the, the uh, there's something about it the piercing of the audio of that going i don't know what it is the first time i ever experienced that i had a hard time sleeping for months and okay. i was young you know i didn't understand any of this stuff but you know i think everything you're saying this is the reality of what we do yep and Especially, it depends on where you work. You know, some some places you you deal with it way more. And the 
capacity we have now, we're just barely figuring out what to do. And we're just, we're siphoning through an old paradigm of living and we're realizing like this is not working. And it takes a lot of people to commit suicide that we're dealing with now to see it, unfortunately. And I think uh, something that was really brought up was the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. And that book, uh, myself and and Haley, my girlfriend, have been reading it, uh, reading that book. And it's crazy, the, the studies that have been done. And that guy was chastised for his studies on understanding and, and discovering trauma and what it does to the human mind, the human body, because there's something at a microcellular level that is being just embedded into the system. And if you can't even process it, you know, that we just have peer support, you know, right? But what happens 10 years later, we're just barely figuring it out. You know, it's an epidemic. It is, and that's what I think that aha moment I realized with all of us collectively doing the I'm fine bit, sucking it up, you know, from the moment that that incident occurs, it's dispatch, it's police, it's fire, and it's everyone else who comes. And in this aha moment, I realized I was doing the same thing because I was worried about my law enforcement partners or the people I supervised. I was I was a leader. And what were they going to think of me if I shared that I was having nightmares after the salon shooting or that I didn't want to go get my own haircut? And even though I, I made myself, I had a hard time, you know, putting my head back in the bowl to get my hair washed or using the mirror to watch the front door because I was a little bit paranoid that someone would come into this salon or that I cried on my way home after giving death notification or, or, or I just was worried about the perception of being weak. And so when I reflect on on this time in my life and raising kids and projecting onto them and my own kids telling me, mom, no one else's parents make them fill in the blank. And like nobody else's parents do what I do for a living. I oversaw the rape crisis center for Orange County as part of my responsibility. I know what happens to kids. So all of these things are influencing the way that I see the world, the lens in which I see the world. And it it was changing me. And not necessarily in a bad way, but we know in public safety that this job changes the lens in which you see the world. And so reflecting on that, I realized, how are we going to all collectively get to retirement? Being happy, healthy, and whole. And I mean holistically healthy. Right. If we don't do something to change the culture. And so I created a four-hour block of instruction the impact of trauma on law enforcement, the impact of trauma on fire. Started teaching with Santa Ana College for Long Beach Fire Wellness um, before it was something that anyone talked about, was doing it at the sheriff's department. And I remember looking out into the audience and thinking, oh my God, they hate this. And then on the breaks, I'd have men with 20, 30 years on and everything in between approach me. And they'd say, Heather, I remember when. And I know that everyone listening would have an I remember when story where it just rocked you to your core. And what I realized in that moment is that people are suffering in silence in this business. For sure. It, it wasn't that they hated the presentation. I was triggering the shit out of them. And so with that, I kept going. And then I taught all the sergeants at Anaheim. One approached me after 
the class and said, Heather, will you help us start our peer support program? And so that took off. I was on their team for about a year. And then the other law enforcement agencies in Orange County were like, hey, what about us? What is this peer support thing? We want one too. And then what was interesting during that time too is I always thought fire had it wired. Like you guys debrief calls, you go back after the incident, you sit around the kitchen table. Um, But what I've learned over this last decade is that you have a, a CIS team or CISD team and they come debrief. But part of what we can talk about is more of my two, the two step model I came up with and, and debriefing a model or excuse me, debriefing an incident, you know, 20 minutes after you get back is too soon because the brain needs three days right. on average to just say, Oh shit, this thing really happened before you can be present and understand where you're at with it. So I helped a number of peer support um, programs develop throughout Orange County law enforcement, some fire departments. And then um, in 2014, I was hired full-time as the regional peer support coordinator at the Orange County Sheriff's Department. I was there for five years, building a team, developing a program, uh, responding to critical incidents. I was on the phone two in the morning with a deputy who's drunk and needed help. Um, You name it, whatever was happening, I was responding. And I was also helping other agencies. That was the regional part, was we would come together regionally. Um, Peer support, it's called the Orange County Association of Peer Supporters, and it was really an opportunity to network, train, and get to know each other in the event of a mutual aid request. And so we created a mutual aid system and we're all very connected and because of all the contracts i now have with my practice premier first responder psychological services um la county riverside county we have quite a few agencies that are part of this peer support um, team and it wasn't until i was 40 i got a tap on the shoulder from uh, someone at irvine pd and he said heather you need to go back to school and i'm like nope i'm good (laughs) I am not going back to school. And then what he said next was so important. He said, Heather, we in public safety need you to go back to school so that you have those initials after your name. So you have the confidentiality and the privilege and and all that stuff. And I said, okay, this is part of my journey. This is what I'm supposed to do. It will happen. And it did. I got my license in 2019 and I left the sheriff's department and started my own practice. And had to grow very quickly because during the pandemic and the post-George Floyd stuff and the shit show of a life we were all living during that time, police and firefighters were struggling so much with the mandatories and the COVID rules and we all lived it. So I had to grow my team and I have an amazing group of um, clinicians, doctorate level, who either grew up in public safety or who were public safety and now they're medically retired. There's just an amazing experience. So I'm very grateful to be where I am at. And then this past May, um, my husband, who's a captain at the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and I were approached by Dr. Sarah Gilman with Coherence Associates, which is in Carlsbad, San Diego County, and said, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to retire and would like to sell my practice. Um, She also had some public safety contracts, a lot of fire departments down in the Carlsbad Oceanside um, area. And 
I looked at my husband and I said, do we really want to do this? And he said, I believe in you. And we are going to take the quality services that you started in Orange County and we're going to take them down to San Diego County. And I said, okay, let's do this. So we're still in a bit of a transition with that. But um, the San Diego County fire departments, the police departments are like, they're hungry for this information. So I'm doing a lot of training, a lot of briefings, a lot of meetings. I'll be down um, in a in a few weeks um, at Vista Fire, and then in March, I have a peer support reboot and team building one day class. So it's really like a, a mini retreat for peer supporters to gain more knowledge about themselves, but also on how to help others. A lot of team building, trying to get people to re-engage if they've had problems, you know, with engagement on their teams. And um, Vista, Carlsbad, and what's the other fire department? Oceanside Fire are all coming together to do that. So it's just really exciting to watch peer support grow, wellness, the topic of wellness. Um, The state of California did provide law enforcement agencies with a wellness grant. So they're able to use it for everything wellness, and it's pretty amazing to see what police and fire departments are doing better now to take care of their people. Because in my opinion, one divorce, one DUI, one suicide, one infidelity, one whatever is one too many. And we have to do a better job of taking care of each other. And so my whole thing is it's okay to not be okay. And it doesn't mean you're not okay for the rest of your life. It means you're not okay in the moment. And I'm trying to get public safety to understand that when a traumatic event occurs, it's like planting a seed in the brain. And if you don't address that seed and you don't pull that back out and say, okay, where am I at with this? And really process it and debrief it. Then what those seeds do is they continue to plant themselves in your brain. And then fast forward years when you go to retire. And those seeds start to sprout. And I use a video in in many of my classes to illustrate that, that what you don't deal with now will show up later. And I have a ton of retirees who come to see me. And there's a firefighter in particular who who's in my head right now. And he said, Heather, I feel like something broken. I don't know what's wrong. And it was all that trauma after 40 years on the job of coming back up now that his brain had calmed down. And so... He didn't understand it. And once he did, and once we were able to do EMDR therapy with it, he's like a different guy. Hmm. He's lost, what did he tell me, 20 or 40 pounds? And wow. he's, he's exercising daily, and he's walking, and he's dealt with the trauma, and he's, he's loving retirement now. He's doing a phenomenal job. But if we don't teach people how to address trauma, then it will, it will get planted, and it will show up, either in our behavior in our mental health, um, or worst case scenario, not be able to withstand any of it and feel like a burden and take their life. And I'm, I don't want that anymore. I've responded to way too many police suicides and it's devastating. So I know it's, the numbers are high on both the police and fire side. That's a lot to ingest. I know. <sighs> no, Sorry. <but laughs> super rad though. You know, I see you as a renegade and you're, you're opening up this this pathway uh because at this point you know i think 
everyone's looking at all this stuff and they're like, we're overwhelmed. What do we do? And everyone's scratching their heads trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So it it's a really, if you take these small steps and trying to, first of all, understanding that the human spirit is so vital and impressive to overcome anything. Absolutely. And we are so malleable, even our brains. Like I could sit on my couch and if I change my way of thinking to a positive mindset, I could change the synapses in my brain and neural pathways to think that way and believe that I could live that way. Yep. But we don't teach that. You know, we're bombarded by just so much negative shit. And everything you're saying is like, you know, you're you're talking about the icing and the cherry on top of it, like all these, you know, tra- traumatic calls we go on. But now let's add childhood trauma to that. Let's add a, a life of, of worthlessness that you feel internally the entire time. We're trying to prove that you're good enough. Right. The, all these things, like these core wounds mm-hmm. that have already been embedded into the programming of someone is there already. Now add to this other stuff. And I like to see all of the trauma and stuff with the visualization of like an hourglass. It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. It just depends on the person of what someone's already had that sand built up before they started the job. Now let's add more shit to it. And all it takes is an effort to turn that hourglass over and empty that bottom casing again. So now you can rebuild. You now you can still add trauma to that, but it's not going to be as intense so uh, when people reach this breaking point, it's at the point where they've had too much already. And, you know, it, it only comes from personal experience, you know, and seeing my brothers and sisters from my job have to deal with this stuff. And then, you know, they don't talk about it. And so it becomes this thing, right? So that's why the, we're in the belly of the beast right now, as they say. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's going to take a lot of ex- excavation to kind of understand what's going on and what do we do. But your work is really inspiring because you know you're you're really hitting it head on and it's not easy you know and, and just seeing your team and, and doing I, I went through your website and seeing everyone you have it's just very admirable to to see someone who cares this much and to believe in something is the, the key to it all so like even the peer support group program like i went to the conference and it was like Oh, I think it was like 800 people mm-hmm. in this conference room. And I was very, very impressed by it. And it was the San Diego County that held it. And we were talking before, like they're, they're very impressive in the way they are approaching all this stuff. Yeah. And I think the biggest part that I believe is what is making it successful is that the city and the bureaucratic bullshit is having a hands-off policy with it. Mm-hmm. They let the members kind of pull the reins and handle it because they know what's going on and they're still trying to figure it out at the same time. So it was, it was pretty impressive, but everyone there, all the agencies, the different departments and everyone wanted to help. And everyone has some type of story that led them to that place. And, And most of those stories are really, really hard to listen to. You know, everyone's been through some serious suicide ideation upheavals, you know, something has happened in their life that has led them to, where they're at and now they're helping people. So there's a term for that besides being resilient and, um, to be able to adapt and overcome is post-traumatic growth. Mm. And at the beginning of all of my peer support classes, I, I make everybody do an intro. And one of the questions is what's your, why, why are you on peer support to piggyback on what you said? It's 
what they've been through in their life or on the job that they are now ready to be there for others and pay it forward. And that is creating meaning and purpose in their life. And that's what post-traumatic growth is, is the ability to take those adversities, challenges, and traumas and be able to pay it forward. And peer support's a great way to do that. But we also want to make sure that peer supporters are well themselves, working on themselves, helping themselves so that helping other people doesn't become their sole focus, that they lose focus on themselves. And so having been to that conference myself and in hearing all these stories, um, it's amazing when someone's ready to tell their story. Totally. I mean, the, the stories were awe-inspiring. And then sometimes someone come up and they tell their story and I'd be like, this person's still traumatized. You yes. know what I mean? I'm like, this person still, still in it. <laughs> needs some therapy. But um, above all else, you know, like I, it all helps, you know, doing chipping away at this stuff and to, to listen to someone who's been there in, in the moment of hell, right. And have gone through the mud of their life and our scrappers, you know, that's inspiring to me. I want to, I want someone like that to help me when I've, I'm going through some shit because they relate and that means so much more to me. And it, it just hits different as they say, you know, it's just, yeah. it, it means something when I, when I'm hurting and, you know, personally, I, I know I'm speaking to the masses who are in this field that they desire that same thing mm -hmm. uh, because they can't just go to any therapist to talk about you know what's going on and they're scared and yeah. they're and they're looking at their their insurance and they have a list of names right there and they're like oh let me go through this checklist who's closest to me so i don't have to drive so fucking far away i'm exhausted from work right and who's going to relate to me and the answer is little to none so i recommend everyone who's in the field please reach out to peer support i am a peer supporter and i been through the training it is it's really really wonderful the way it's set up and all you have to do is just call and, and just talk to some of these people. They've been through it and they relate to you. And so they'll meet you in your place of whatever it is, you know, whether it's extreme or not extreme. And so I just highly, highly recommend peer support is, the, is one of the answers right now with this mental health crisis that we're dealing with. Yeah. I always say it takes a village. And For sure. the village includes peer support. It includes now departments have dogs it includes chaplains, it includes mental health professionals. And I'm a, a very firm believer for the last 20 years that I've been doing this or more than 20 now, is really about relationships and creating those relationships with the departments with the peer support teams, so that they can call anytime and say, Hey, we've got one of our members in crisis, help us. And we're there to help them. And so I think that's super important that when we're talking about like this village of people to take care of you, that there's quite a few options and your peer support also is protected under assembly bill 1116 now for their confidentiality. And so the California, I think it's the California commission of firefighters nice. had a, um, an application process to get people certified under this assembly bill. And I was very grateful that I've been certified to do that. Also with another um, company that I, I work with, Embassy Consulting. I do a lot of my teaching under them too. So there's a lot of protections in place. You know, sometimes people have told me over the years that 
um, I'm not going to my peer support because I don't trust anyone, right? They're scared of that betrayal, the organizational betrayal that happens in a lot of departments. They're scared of the lack of, you know, they're fearful of the confidentiality issue. And so you don't have to trust everyone, but at least have somebody, one person that is part of your tribe that you can go to and say anything to without judgment. I just think that that is such a gift when you have at least one, if not a tribe of people that you can go to, to trust and have these difficult conversations with. I'm glad you brought up the the sense of a tribe because that was one of the, the major things I've, I've been discussing about what's part of the medicine. And one of them is unity, having a family mentality. And it's been severed off for the last couple of years mm-hmm. and everyone's felt it. So what's, Part of that is that you know we we are essentially wired to be part of uh, some type of hive or community because we desire that, and the people who are ostracized or they're left in loneliness, those are the ones that will really go through it. And so there there is a, a piece to that as well that's that's necessary. You know, the being lonely to be with yourself and do it courageously is important because to sit with yourself your thoughts and your emotions is part of the process Mm -hmm. because no one you can have all the all the guides all the therapists all the clinicians to kind of help you but if you don't do this separate portion of it where you have to stick to a practice like journaling or honoring yourself in some type of way it's because you have to have everything kind of come into alignment have your own aha moments no one's gonna have. No one's gonna be able to have those aha moments for you, no. and that's the key part. Is where that's where you're launched into this new part or this evolution of yourself when you can have those moments. So there's a key point to when you do honor that part of yourself. But the community aspect is to come together to realize, hey, we are all one in this this fight, and we're doing it together. So. Just to uh, understand unification is really rad, the way you, you're instilling that. That's a huge part of what this is all about. And I think people are afraid to be open with themselves. They have shame with whatever it is. And because if you have an intrusive thought and you're like, that wasn't my thought, but that was in my mind, mm-hmm. there's a, a bit of shame with, with what that is. And I know through my own place of my own thought processes and i'm way open with my girlfriend about everything that goes on i tell her everything it doesn't matter what what it was if i have i don't i don't carry that shame anymore but it took me a while to open up when i did open up that was the key to our abundance in our relationship because i did that and it took me took a lot of courage to do it yes and a deeper it creates a deeper connection by opening up and trusting that what you're going to say is safe with her. And I think that that's a huge component. It was interesting when you said um, shame. There's also that shame comes from a place of, well, I'm, I go and I help other people. I fix other people's Mm. shit. How come I can't fix my own? Why aren't I strong enough to fix myself? And the reality is that, you know, if we have a, you know, I'll use the dentist as an example. If we have a cavity we're not going to go in there ourselves and pull it out and, <laughs> and fix it. We have to go to a dentist to get help. It's the same idea. If something is broken in our brain or hurts in our brain, um, we need to go to a doctor and get some help. And so I think as we continue with the 
this reducing the stigma and changing the culture and public safety, it's going to get, it's going to get better and better. But I also want to remind everyone listening that nobody is invincible to trauma. Like we have different thresholds. Like I have a super high threshold to trauma because <laughs> I listen to it all day sure. long, but it doesn't mean that on occasion I don't have a moment where I'm like, Oh, that sucked. Mm. That hurt. And the key that I'm trying to also teach you guys is to sit in the discomfort mm. and nobody wants to. It's like, nope, push it away. I don't like it. I don't like how it feels. It feels helpless. It feels like I'm out of control. Get rid of it. And that's where avoidance comes from. Right. And then avoidance is the precursor to post-traumatic stress injury. Mm. So I'm really trying to teach you guys like, hey, when you're exposed to something that doesn't feel right, and I call feelings the F word of public safety too, because we don't talk feelings. You have a reaction to something is you have to compartmentalize it to get your job done, right? Training and experience kicks in, you do what you got to do. But when you're done and you're back at the, the, the firehouse or you're back at the police station or wherever you're going back to, you can actually pull it out. And I like visually will like yank it out and say, okay, confront it. Hmm. Where am I at with this? Am I experiencing any type of reaction to this incident? Hmm. And then you can say, okay, no, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. Or the next category might be, I'm slightly impacted. I'm a little sad that this thing happened. And then the last category is, in my terms, I'm rocked. Like this one rocked me to my core. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm irritable. I can't eat. I want to throw up, whatever it is. You acknowledge the normal acute stress reactions that come with the exposure to trauma. Mm. And then you decide, who am I going to talk to about the way I'm experiencing this? And that's something you could do daily. Like, where am I at with today? Where am I at with this 24-hour shift? Where am I at after 72 hours? And then that's where your tribe comes in. And Lisa's someone on my tribe. So I'll text her and say, hey, had a rough one. Rough call out, rough debrief, rough, you know, even a, a clinical session once in a while where there's a ton of trauma. Um, but it's being able to pull it out and confront it and sit in the discomfort because it's like a wave. This is what I say. It's like a wave. A wave's coming at you and you can try to, to shield yourself from it or hide from it, but it's going to pound on you. Mm. Instead, if you learn to ride the wave, the wave eventually fizzles out onto the sand. And it's no longer impacting you. And that's what emotion will do too. Hmm. We just have to be strong enough to sit with the discomfort so it can fizzle out and talk to someone. I love how you say sit with the discomfort because, you know, one of my mentors, he told me um, to sit with it one time because I was going to him with all these things that I had that was going on in my mind and going on in my life. He's like, sit with it. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, sit with what it is because mm -hmm. it's teaching you something. Yep. And when you learn what it's teaching you, it'll go away. And so with the teachings, you know, if you, have, if you take a inner inventory with yourself, um, I think when I sat with it, I learned that there's a responsibility piece to it and acceptance. So I, I took responsibility to say, hey, I am responsible for whatever this is to me and I'm gonna own it. And after I did that, I was able to trajectory myself in a different way to accept it and then believe that I could move past it. 
And I did that with everything that came up in my life after that. And it was really powerful to to own something and, and take that responsibility because it gave me this this willpower to to know that I'm I'm strong enough to to move beyond it and also learn the teachings. Because if you're unwilling to learn and be malleable to the learnings and the teachings, then I mean that's the whole point of this process. Mm-hmm. So that's that was, amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was it's only because I had a mentor to tell me that. You know, and and I had like three or four mentors in my life that really assisted me in my process of upheaval. And I didn't know what I would have done without them. With the sitting in the discomfort, that was probably the the moments where I felt the most growth, the post traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And with with what you're saying too, it's like that is part of this process, whether you like it or not own it respectfully yeah you know we're here to support you no matter what however you gotta take that ownership and change everything in a positive way when you look at things you know there's a kaleidoscope to one aspect of something Mm -hmm. and if you can peel away at each piece it's always showing you something and it just takes a lot of courage to do it and most people don't want to do it (laughs) well and it's interesting that you say that you know they don't want to do it when they are finally ready to do it, mm. that's when usually they make the phone call for therapy. It's like, okay, I'm I'm ready. And so with that being said, it takes enormous amounts of strength to reach out to a clinician and say, okay, I'm ready to confront this bullshit, mm. whether it's childhood stuff or it's work-related stuff. And I have a lot of first responders who have childhood conceptualization of not being good enough. Somewhere along the way, subconsciously, could could have been a coach, a teacher, could have been anybody, right? A parent who subconsciously sort of planted the seed like, nope, you're not good enough. And so they continue to try and prove through their life that they are. And then so they end up burning out or getting sick or whatever it is. And it's like, you're good enough just the way you are. Hmm. But we have to teach you to, to love yourself again. I think that's being raised with a narcissist. It could be. Yeah. Um, like I said, it could come from anywhere. Right. It could come from growing up without a parent. It could grow up, you know, it divorce. It could be a lot of things. And if you're not secure in who you are and, and secure in your value system, then it can cause more problems professionally too. Wow. I love the way you said that. Like securing your value system and it, I mean, it takes a bit of grit to get to the values. You know, you got to get past all the superfluous information above it to get down to the root of what it is, of who you are. Yeah. And you got to, if you don't have a value system, you got to start building something. And if you don't have a self-love practice, you got to start doing it. I highly recommend you give yourself a wink in the mirror and tell yourself you love yourself and walk away. <laughs> you start, better start parking yourself in front of the mirror and start doing it. It's It's very valuable. It's funny that you said that. I was listening to another podcast and this, this man was saying that he could not look at himself in the mirror. And when he finally did, he just broke down and started crying. Hmm. And a huge part of that is a term called incongruence. And so what that is, is you have a value system, something's important to you, but you're not behaving consistently with your values. And so you look at yourself and you're like, who the hell am I? 
I'm not behaving in a way that's consistent or congruent with who I am. And so it causes a lot of internal conflict. Wow. You know, it kind of brings up some of this, some of the work that I do is I help people with trauma uh, doing pattern work. And so behavioral patterns are, you know, what we present ourselves into this world, into this reality with. And there's so many different types of patterns that we have that are subconsciously supporting them. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's showing. And then our spouses show us what those behavioral patterns are first, right? Without us even seeing it. Yep. And that's why a lot of conflict comes into, you know, these types of relationships because they're telling you something and you're not willing to look at it. So these behavioral patterns are really important to kind of excavate so much. And the way I've seen it through doing my own work is that these behavioral patterns underlying that are belief systems that are supporting these ways of doing, these ways of being. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times these beliefs, these belief systems aren't true. Like, I believe I am unworthy. I believe I'm not good enough. I believe I can't do this. You know, these are limiting belief systems. And underneath that, there's something supporting it. And that's where you're at. That's where the truth is, which is awesome. So when we get there to the truth, we can live in our truth and we can discover, okay, this is, this is me. This is my identity. And that's where your value systems can be built. And it's, it's definitely, um, a lot of people won't go there. Uh, but I've found, I've, I've, I've been able to find my truth through them and I changed my life because of it, because I had stopped doing the stupid behaviors, uh, through insecurities or whatever it was. And I had to be honest with myself, brutally honest but with that brutal honesty came with a brutal uh, 180 of a turn in my life where people didn't know who I was anymore. So I really love the, the value system and the way you're, you're bringing that up because it's, it's so important to have that. And that if, you have, if you're left alone in this life and that's all you have, that's good enough. That'll mm-hmm. support you in any endeavor you have in your life. Um, and I wish this was taught more, you know, and people to, to see that this, it's so easy. It's not that hard, but all you have to do is just have a little bit of courage to do it and someone to guide you along the way. So it's that, pretty rad. That's actually something I'm teaching in, um, my team building peer support reboot. There's a whole section on values so that people can identify. And what I make them do is here's a list of like 50 values. Now I want you to pick 10. And from there, I want you to pick five. And now from five, I want you to say, what's your number one value? And really understand where is that coming from? Because that's part of that congruence and living a life that is that feels right and true for them. And it's interesting when you put a group of people together in public safety, how similar their value systems are. <laughs> but yet... What are they? But they don't know it. <laughs> Uh, justice, fairness, um, honesty, integrity, things like that. And that's, that's another, I think, problem within public safety too, is that you probably are more similar than you're different, but yet there's still so much eating your own going on in departments. Oh, without a doubt. (laughs) And it, it, it's so debilitating for morale and it's so debilitating for the individual self-esteem and just the things that I see from both police and fire that does not discriminate 
the organizational perception of organizational betrayal and the bullying and all the things that have gone on over the last few decades. And it's really tearing people down. And my whole thing is, why can't we pull each other up and hold each other up and be supportive of one another instead of just being an asshole to people? Why do you think that is? I think that there's an inherent competition within type A's. <laughs> For, sure. <laughs> <And it's, laughs> For sure. Right? It's yeah. like, and I'm a type A. So I, I've had those moments and those pulls of that feeling of competitiveness. Mm. And my, my theory, my theme really of how I, where I hold myself with that is I will create programs. I will create opportunities for first responders. I will create gap, things that are gaps in services, but I will not compete with anybody because that is, I want to be strong enough not to, to go there because that, that isn't who I am. I'm yes. I, I grew up playing sports and I was competitive that way. But when it comes to having a practice or helping first responders, I'm not competing with anybody because it goes against my value system. And so I think as people look at themselves within their organizations and remind themselves like, okay, I'm a type A, I want to get this position. I want to bid for this station. I want to do this. I want to do that. You don't have to step on people to do it because if you do, and that's not who you are, then you're not being your true self to begin with. So really being able to reflect on who you are and what's important to you and doing it in a way where it's not stepping on your peers and learning to hold each other up. That's a huge, I think in my mind, like a, a thing that's been engraved into public service and especially being a firefighter or a police officer there's this thing where you have to prove yourself to earn your place in the tribe. Yep. And to be a beginner doing that, that you have a lot to learn and there's a lot of humility involved with it. Absolutely. And there is a point where you, you lose a bit of your identity uh, in that process, which is that's demeaning to you. If you're going to go through that because you have to let everything go of who you thought you were and to, to earn the, the trust of your peers, mm -hmm. uh, people who you live with and work with. And I think, I mean, I went through that myself and I realized um, there was a, a, there was a supervisor that was um, making me angry and I was being an asshole to um, the people I was serving. Like as a paramedic, I was being an asshole to patients and he was like that. And so I was, I started to become him and there came a point where one of my, my uh, partners was working with me and he was like, dude, what happened to you? He's wow. like, there's there, you're not the same person and you got to change because I don't like the way you treated that person. And I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. Like I'm, I think I'm just acting like this captain. And he was like, you got to leave this place. And it was a, it was, it was, a, uh, it was really humilifying to witness that in myself and change it because I was, he was being honest with me and I respected that in him. And there was a point where I was like, I was trying to be someone I wasn't to earn someone's respect who didn't respect me. Right. That's the incongruence again. <laughs> right. So that hurt. Yes. And I really had to look at that. And there was, there was a, a fine line of, of honestly, it was myself not respecting myself 
it's really hard when you're working in this field and you don't get the respect you deserve. And that was a huge wound that I carried that was showing me something. But then I looked back on it and the last 10 years, I've met people in my life who've been trying to teach me self-respect the entire time and running into the same assholes. And it was just really interesting the way that that poor leadership showed me how not to be a leader in that way. Um, So that paradigm has shifted in the way I see things. I um, got so many talking points in what you just said. (laughs) When, When I have a lot of firefighters who have been mandatory and continue to be forced to work and the burnout factor is huge and they're starting to be assholes to patients or it's the same transient they're sick of it and 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 right holding a wall at the hospital and all the things that are going on and as they're burning out and as they're becoming somebody that they're not comfortable seeing in the mirror i always ask them what's your why What's your original reason for wanting to become a firefighter? And they they have to pause for a minute. And I go, go all the way back. (laughs) However many years that is, go back. What was your why? And they'll tell me and I'll say, okay, now, does any of that apply today? Because your why can change. Your purpose can change throughout your career and throughout your life, really. And so I tell them, I go, if you can't control for all the other variables around you, the same transient who looks dead on the sidewalk, the forced tires and the holding the walls and all the things you're doing as a paramedic or firefighter, then what can you control? You can control your purpose. You can control your value. You can control how you show up to work every day. And so, yes, this job changes you from the beginning. You are looking to, first of all, pass probation, be accepted, by your peers, which is all very important in in this business. But not in, is it so important that you're willing to lose who you are in the process of it? And so when people start focusing on reframing their thoughts, which is what you're talking about, right? What can I learn from this? What is the purpose of this? What is my, what is my purpose in this moment? And maybe it's much bigger than you've ever thought. Mm -hmm. When you start changing the way that you look at these negatives that perhaps they're not feeling the way that they were feeling before. So it goes back. What was your why? And everybody has, even if it's just, I want to help people. Well, you are helping people. It just might not be in the way you want to today. I totally, I totally get that. And I love how you, you ask questions because that is, that is what like a detective does in a, inside of a, you know, inside of a crime scene, they're asking questions. How did this happen? You can do the same thing with yourself, you know, and, and I ask myself important questions all the time because I know I'll get brutally honest answers. And if you can do that with yourself, play with it. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, when I come across the situation, I ask myself, how did I create the situation for myself? Because I don't blame anyone for anything. That's part of taking responsibility for your life and empowering yourself because at some point, you know, as far as you go into the universal law aspect, the pendulum is going to swing. It's going to come back to you no matter what. Yep. That's part of what we call cause and effect. So I asked myself, Hey, how did I cause this? Cause it's coming back to me some way and everything is a reflection of me and how I perceive my life. So 
the way you ask questions can be really um, geared to the way you want to create your reality too. So I love how you're just saying, well, where's the why? Ask yourself these questions because you have the answers. I ask a lot of questions when I'm doing therapy. <laughs> yeah, it's rad. It's important. And then, then that plays out in my personal life. And both my husband and my daughter are like, stop asking so many questions. I'm like, it's what I do. And that's the part too, when you come in, when you're coming home, I can't, I can't do that all the time. You know, it's like, I gotta be, um, with a child. She's like, my girlfriend's daughter is nine. And she asked me why all the time. I'm like explaining myself like, hold on a second. There's boundaries here. Like don't ask questions all the time because right. just wait, be patient sit back and watch the show. That's part of it too. Mm -hmm. um, so with the question asking though, I really, I, I think people have lost insight to some of these tools that are very simple to kind of find what's going on, especially with trauma, right? Because everything happens for a reason. That's what I truly believe. I do too. And if there's, if there's a, a divine way of, of this making an algorithm for you to learn, you just got to find out how to navigate your way around bubbling the answers correctly because the the lesson is going to keep coming unless you figure out what's going on. <laughs> but I think with that, and, and I can even speak, right? Like here I am, I do this for a living. I live it, I breathe it. But sometimes my own insight into myself, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to, I have to slow my brain down. I have to have a mm. weekend. I have to have something where I can say, okay, why am I so irritable? What is going on that's causing me to feel angry? And if we don't sit back and reflect on that, it's easier to be in someone else's head than in our own. And so asking ourselves those questions takes, I think, intention and a quietness. Mm. And we have that means in order to get quiet, we have to stop doing. And we have a hard time in this business not doing, right? People have a hard time sitting still, resting, listening to their body, listening to their brain. What do I need? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I need sleep? <clears throat> you know, um, so it's easy to reflect on someone else and for me to ask you questions. But then to ask myself questions can be a little bit different. We're better in for other sure. people's trauma, if that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> Without a doubt. You know, it the the art of listening has been really really taken down to where we don't do it anymore and just to sit in silence is not you don't have to see it as meditation you you can that's what it is mm -hmm. i mean yeah if you ask a buddhist monk what meditation is they said to sit that's all they say so if you sit and you listen a lot of times that clarity can come through and you want to you want to live a life of clarity that's kind of the whole point you want you don't want you know all of the lies coming through once you have clarity you can see through the lies right so that's kind of the whole point of listening and there is an intuitive space in us that we can find if we give it a chance to get past all the noise yep <laughs> so, and i mean for me i love silence because I, when I go to work, all I'm hearing is just like industry and like gears running from like just trailers and like cars and traffic. And it's like, when I come home, I don't want to hear a damn thing. Just silence. Yep. 
and it's beautiful. I have a I have a friend who went to a silent retreat for two weeks. Wow! And <laughs> the rules are no sound. It's like like at some point he I mean he had a breaking point with himself, and he was like, dude, I like I just loved it, you know. And we just really lost a part of that art, and we learned to disassociate with tasks and doing. I mean, you don't have to go drink uh, alcohol to disassociate anymore. It's it's doing stuff. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a long task book of stuff you need to do, that's not really honoring yourself unless you put an intention behind it. You know, like, I'm going to listen to good music. It's going to ground me. I'm going to listen to my myself. But there's a way of disassociating when you know you're doing it. And that's a behavioral pattern in itself. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. And that goes back to people usually not wanting to sit in the discomfort. Mm. I don't want to hear myself think. I don't want to. I don't want to think about what I'm thinking about, um, and it's not comfortable. So I'm going to distract. Or it's the hypervigilance in the nervous system, where you're on duty for two, three days at a time, and it takes time to come down from the on-duty brain and body to the off-duty brain and body. So that's something else I teach too: is having a transition plan from work to home. What does that look like? And I have firefighters who, you know, will go home and they're still spun up. And so they spin up their family. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, you're, you're messing with our, uh, our mojo here. Like we have some good energy and you're coming in and ruining it. Like go out and come back in or something. So I'm really trying to teach firefighters and police, you know, whether it's 12 hours on in home or it's two days, you know, in home is what can you do starting at, the minute you're off duty, you know, you take your uniform off, you put on your civilian clothes, and now you start a process of checking in. Where am I at in my body? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I tired? Am I angry? Am I feeling tense in my shoulders? You know, am I irritable because of a, you know, somebody said something to me at the, you know, firehouse the other day or whatever it is. Um, And then being able to either listen to music, something relaxing, a podcast, um, I listen to comedy radio when I'm driving <laughs> or nothing, right? Do we need nothing? We need no noise. And f- really figuring out what do I need to come down so that when I get home, I can be present and not in this completely hypervigilant, annoyed space. And so that's a just a opportunity for people to create a transition plan is what I call it. Hypervigilance is a motherfucker. Yep. I mean, it creeps up on you and you don't even realize you're in it until you're in it. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's the hard one. I think for, for all of us is where you need to have some serious awareness to when that's, that's, that's on you. Um, cause it's a beast, you know, and yep. it's, it's this driving force of autopilot when you're at work to do your job well. And it just burns out your nervous system. And, if you're going <laughs> to, it's hard because I mean, I, I, I do all the things, you know, I do all do the cold plunge or I'll meditate. And like, mm-hmm. I still feel that shit, you know, how do I get off this hypervigilance ride? And I have to just be really, really aware of when it's happening. And I, I always feel like the end of my four days when it stopped and like, and like I'm getting the best sleep and you know, I'm, I'm acting so present with, my home and I'm feeling good. And then I go back into it. Right. Your very last day off. Yes. (laughs) Well, I always say it takes about 48 hours for, for that to come down. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and so when you're not working, you know, when you don't have those two days off in a row to really be mindful of where am I at in all those aspects, you could come down faster. But when you have one day off, and now you don't, you're like, I've one day off and 20 things on this list to do, there is no coming down, right? And the body being in a hypervigilant state for long periods of time can wreak havoc on your nervous system, on your immune, immune system on causing medical problems, psychological problems, like I really do look at wellness as a mind, body, spirit, relational, financial, all aspects of, of our being. I'm glad you brought that up because when I went to the peer support group conference, they said it, they are approaching this from a biological, uh, psychological, emotional spiritual approach and because it is an all-encompassing we are so intensely multi-dimensional and multi-faceted beings and if we don't understand what we need at that certain period of time let's add something to it something traumatic and then now you're having an appetite for destruction so I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it is, it's so important to understand. It's like, it's, it is work to do your work to analyze yourself. <laughs> it is. That's why the daily check-in of where am I at with this? Yeah. What are, where am I at with this day is part of the awareness piece for yourself. It's getting to know you physically and mentally so that you know which direction to pivot in to have that opportunity to bring your nervous system down or to cl- to discuss what's causing you anger. And I call anger the surface emotion. So when people are experiencing anger, I always make them like dig one step deeper. What is it that you're really sitting with? Sit with it for a minute. I feel helpless. I couldn't save that person's life. I felt out of control because of the you know politics of the world we're in right now. It could be anything, sadness, loss, depression, anxiety, and that hypervigilance can cause people to feel angry because they feel out of control. So sitting and learning about yourself and, and calling it for what it is will help you get through it faster too. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you, you said the F word, right? Feelings. And, you know, most ancient cultures, they, they honored emotion in a certain way, even like Chinese medicine. I mean, they, they see emotion as attached to certain organs of the system. And if you don't go into that, that area, it's going to cause dis-ease in the body unless you figure out the emotion that's been blocked, yep. which is really fascinating that if, if this has been working for thousands of years and now what we do is just cut it out or prescribe something to a symptom of something to fix it. Okay. Well, what are we doing here? And that goes when with our mental health, like we're, we're so geared to thinking it's like, it's not so complex. It's really not. If you, if you have these tools, if you have, if you take the courage to do it right. Mm-hmm. But the emotions are the key here. You know, you have to know what the emotions are and process them. If call, you don't call them for what they are so that right. you can process them. And it's okay to, to yeah. call it for what it is. That's why we say like brutal honesty is the key here. Like just be honest with yourself. Like, Hey, I, do I feel shame. Hell yeah. I feel shame. It sucks, but I can easily transition out of shame into something else. So the whole point here is to, you know, replace a bad emotion with what you're feeling with a good one to get out of whatever hole you're in and whatever, you know, world of hell you've created for yourself. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what we're good at doing. We're good at making pain in a world of hell, but we do it to ourselves. 
you know, something is traumatic that does happen, you know, if we find the good in, in what we did and how we showed up in the incident, now we can kind of shift things around a little bit to where it, we don't have to give ourselves that blame of something I didn't do. And sometimes you got to give yourself credit and be compassionate with yourself with some of these incidences because shit's crazy out there. I mean, the stuff I've been through is just wild. I just laugh now because it's just unreal. Yes. You know? And that surrealness is very common experience in public safety is, did this really just happen? <laughs> and you laugh because your brain's like, what? Yeah. How, how the hell did this happen? And I've, I've done that a number of times being out in the field. And the other part, um, you said something that, that jogged a memory for me. And now I can't remember what it is. <laughs> what did I say? I, <laughs> I need a pad of paper so I can make notes. Um, we'll, come, we'll circle back. To yes, that. let's circle back. <laughs> My brain's on fire first thing. No, it's all good. I think the, the major thing I think right now is um, we're pushing against burnout. That is, I, I still deal with it, mm-hmm. you know, at a conscious level. And I, I can't do anything about that. I cannot take control of the call volume, the types of calls I'm going on. Nope. But what I can't control is how I respond internally. And that is something that, that every single one of us can do. But the burnout thing is, you know, we there's there's something going on with this forced overtime thing that is really causing havoc on a lot of members. Oh my gosh! And yes. different departments are dealing with it differently. I know my my department gives us two two a month, two shifts a month. Okay, I know some departments are giving nine shifts a month, and that's insane. Yep. How do you let these men and women go home to their families and try to be normal? It's insane. There has there there's if we can't change anything. That has to be done at an administrative perspective. And I hope people are listening to this to understand like that has to change because it's too much. And if you're doing it willingly to work the overtime to pay for a boat, that's another something, that's something else you got to look at. But they're, they're the hypervigilance and the burnout stages, I mean, the way I see it is that I become numb to where I, I cannot feel anymore. And I don't want to open up anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm closed off, you know, my, my girlfriend will be the first one to, to recognize it. And she says, hey, what's going on? And I'll say, nothing. Every single time. And I know internally, I'm just numb. I can't fucking feel. And I don't drink anymore. But when I did drink, I would drink more. And then that would numb me even more. Right. And so that was a long period of behavior that I had to look at and when I opened that Pandora's box, holy shit, that was rough. I went through a serious, serious upheaval in a deep dark night of the soul when I opened that one up. But now I can have a better a way to understand, you know, what's going on. But the burnout is is real and it happens all the time. And what can you do about it? Well, I guess take take responsibility for what's going on with yourself, but what do you think can be done with burnout? It's, I don't know. That's like an epidemic in itself too. It, it is. Um, I'm smiling because there is someone who came to me very burned out and he's paramedic. And every time the blue light would go off in his station, his reaction was, oh, fuck. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's a good starting point. So, and again, lots of forced and you're too 
I wish it was only two for this other department. It's like, I think on average six, five to six. Um, And so I said, okay, what can we replace with off fuck when the blue light goes off? I go, how can we reframe your, your having to go out there and provide whatever needs to be provided at the time? And so we, we threw around some different ideas of, okay, here's an opportunity for me to help someone. Here's an opportunity for me to make a difference. Here's an opportunity for me to maybe even get annoyed because it's the same person that we've responded to four times this night or whatever it is. But it's being able to reframe the way that you're thinking about your job when that moment comes, whether it's the red light, the PA or the blue light or whatever's going on and, and learn to instead of say, oh, fuck, because it was interrupting his workouts too. Right. And so then it's like, okay, your working out is important for your, your body and your mind. And I want you to work out. But if you can't get an hour done in, in one hour because you keep getting called out, then could you do 15 minutes at a time, come back after the run, come back and do 15 more minutes or navigate the time and not just have it in your head. If I don't get an hour, I'm not doing it right. There's different ways of doing it. So that was part of the burnout is how can I take control of my thoughts? How can I take control of my health and my wellness while I am working? How can I be intentional with the time I have with my family? How can I be grateful for the opportunity to make extra money to buy that house, that boat, that car, that whatever? So it's really learning to reframe a lot of those things. But also, you've got to take some fucking time off. <laughs> like <laughs> like sure. I said, your body and brain need at least 48 hours to decompress and maybe being on duty three, four days in a row. You need more than that. And so when's your next vacation? When can you take that time off? And this might not be a popular thing I'm going to say, but if worst case scenario that you're completely numb, you're not sleeping and you're a deprived, de- you know, depleted version of yourself, then how, how much are you going to be able to function at work to begin with? Then you call in sick. And yes, it's going to make somebody else have to work. But if you are a potential liability to yourself and others, then why are you out there? Take the damn time off and reboot yourself so that you can go back and help other people who are also burned out. Yeah, we're really good at masking our symptoms. We just stuff it down until, you know, you get cancer or, you know, mm-hmm. something serious comes up. Right. And that's that's the whole thing here is you want to get you on a neutral level to where you don't get to that point anymore. And it, it takes a lot of honesty to just check in and it sucks but what can you do you know there's not no one else is going to do it for you and we're just we're brilliant at masking Mm -hmm. and just sticking it for the team and being a good soldier yep i'm strong i'm strong i'm strong i can keep doing it yeah until you you can't because something big comes up so as far as all this is is encasing i (laughs) as far as what's on your desk you know, what do you think is going to happen, um, I guess, five years from now, 10 years from now with, with all this stuff? That is such a good question. <laughs> I think because I've, you know, when I reflect back when I first started, it was like 20, probably 2010-ish. So it's been like 14 years of peer support and, and, and watching people look at me sideways like, what the hell is this touchy-feely bullshit? 
Yeah. Like that was the original reaction. And now it's, you've got multiple generations working together and there's more buy-in than ever. And I think that is remarkable. So I do believe that as we continue five years down the road, 10 years down the road, that it's just going to be a continuation of norm. When I have firefighters talking to each other in a group about their therapy with me and comparing notes, it cracks me up. I'm like, this would have <laughs> never happened five years ago, let alone, you know, 10 well, years ago. Well, that's what they were doing when I was, in, when I was at the meeting. <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were talking about, like, hey, are you going to go see Dr. Heather Williams? I was like, who's Dr. Heather Williams? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> it's such a trip for, to me because Jason will tell me or they'll yeah. tell me like, yeah, I was at this meeting, Halos for Heroes meeting and... Um, we were talking about you and when's your appointment and what are you doing in EMDR? And I'm like, wow, has the culture shifted? So I think the more we normalize that this is just what you do, right? You got a, you got a toothache, you go to the dentist, you break a, a leg, you go to the doctor, you're having trouble with something in your life, you go to a psychologist or a mental health professional. And that more and more people are already talking about it. And coming up to me at trainings and saying, Oh, yeah, I've made an appointment with so and so and can't wait for my annual wellness check in because that's something that premier does as well as annual wellness check ins. Mm -hmm. And right now we are in a number of police departments and Pasadena fire is the first one to do them. And we I have a protocol. So it's three different assessments. It's a sleep assessment, a resiliency assessment, and then a stress assessment. And you do it before you even meet, and then you meet with the clinician on duty at a secure, confidential location. And you have an hour to chat and talk mm. about the results of your assessments, to talk about whatever's troubling you or you know you come in with. And it's been proven to really help change the culture and reduce the stigma. It's just what we're doing. So when you when you go to a department and there's a sign on the door that says annual wellness check-ins in progress, it tells the troops like this is what we do. I like that. Or an entire, you know, um shift will wait in the parking lot in Pasadena. The fire truck comes in and you know, maybe it's the captain's turn, so he's in there for an hour and they're all hanging out waiting mm. and saying, Oh, when's it your turn? Like that is how we continue to increase people's receptivity to taking care of their their wellness overall hmm. yeah i think uh you know i had said something before the last episode but the people just want to be heard yes you know and uh and whether you like it or not you want to be heard because there's something inside of you that wants to be expressed and if you have no one to talk to or to trust you know, if you can't bring it home in and use that, that's there's something going on. So take a look at that. But we just want to be heard. And there's a lot inside of this box of what's going on. And I think we're coming up on an hour and a half. I think uh, we're tapping out here on time. But just to close with uh, just an understanding with with all of this. Okay, there's, there's not one answer to it. But if we are giving ourselves the capability for that positive change. That's where it's at. And you have to make the change. It starts with you. You are the one that's solely responsible for your mental health, for your behavioral health, and just do it. So there's support. And peer support is really wonderful. If you've heard about it or whatever, 
try it out. It's one of the most important things and impactful things. And that's one of the things that Dr. Heather Williams here is, is doing. She has her own peer support training program. So um, I don't know if you have anything else to say, Heather. I do. I just want to thank everybody who's listening for the incredible work that you do to protect and serve your communities because it is really obvious how it takes a special person to do the work you do, to be there on someone's worst day. And when people have asked me throughout the years, Heather, how do you do what you do? My answer is always, it's an honor to be there for someone Mm -hmm. on their worst day. And so if you're feeling burned out and you're not feeling appreciated and disconnected, please remember it is an honor to be there for someone's worst day and that there are people out there who understand you, who are here to help you so that you can cope with someone's worst day and not develop a post-traumatic stress injury that comes with the accumulation of the stress and trauma of this job. Thank you again. And thank you, John, so much for what you're doing to shine a light and to help people stop suffering in silence. It, sure. it takes an incredible strength to do what you're doing. And I, I value that and I respect that. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It was awesome to talk to you. And you. I know you're super busy, but I'd love to do this again. It was really rad. And I, I've just heard from so many different people after I even scheduled you in, they knew you and did your training and stuff like that. Um, even our sponsor, uh, Frontline Behavioral Wellness, mm-hmm. knows you and all the work you've done. And even Anthony, who went, was on a guest on the podcast, had... I listened to that one, too. Yeah, so uh, I was really uh, impressed with your work, and I'd love to keep working again, but... Um, yes. Thank you so we much. We can plan another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, all right, everybody, thank you for listening today. And um, just like I had mentioned, every end of the podcast... Frontline Behavioral Wellness is our team member and sponsor, and they want you to reach out. So they have a phone number that's direct to Frontline, or sorry, first responders and firefighters, police officers, veterans. There's a a hotline they have that's 24-7 confidential, and it's 661-877-7241 to reach out to them. And they can help you in so many different ways on the treatment they provide. So... Thank you everyone for listening and go on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, give us some ratings and thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye.